6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of 1 Peter, chapters 4 and 5. Well, welcome to our next session, in fact, the final session on 1 Peter. And uh, these epistles of Peter are a lot of fun because he's a little different than Paul. You know, Paul is great, probably one of the greatest minds that ever walked the planet Earth, actually. But Peter's more our kind of guy, impulsive, emotional, uh, delightful character in many, many ways. And his epistles uh, reflect all of that. And uh, so, a couple of questions to ponder as we wrap up this first epistle. Are we human flesh undergoing a spiritual experience? That's one view. Or are we spiritual beings undergoing a human experience? Now, either of you can be correct, but it's just a different vantage point. Or is that the result of a transition that we call the new birth? Because we're really both, aren't we? If we're saved. If you're not saved, you're in the flesh, but if you're and lost. But if you're saved, you're then saved, but you haven't lost your, your flesh. It's a war that continues as long as you're in this physical body. Well, let's just jump in then with 1 Peter chapter 4. Verse 1, For as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. For he that suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin. Wow, now this is a verse that can be easily misunderstood, generate all kinds of thoughts. Arm yourselves. And of course, the minute you see that, you might put in your notes the armor of God in Ephesians 6. Verses 10 to 18. I'm going to resist the temptation to jump in and summarize all of that because it should be fresh in your mind from our study in Ephesians. But in any case, if it's not, in your own reviews, you can go back and just study Ephesians 6, verses 10 to 18. Don't forget to verse 18. Many people just go to 17. They miss the most important, the heavy artillery, which is the prayer, which is the, 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 the seventh of the seven things. But he says, as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise. With what? The same mind. What? The mind of Christ. And uh, the mind of Christ, this is a subject, by the way, of my wife's book, Be Transformed. And uh, emphasizing the mind is not the brain. You and I tend to think of mind and brain as synonymous. No. Uh, the, the mind is the whole process of thinking from resolution to action. And so it's much more comprehensive than just a, you know, a computerized element of the system, if you will. It's the whole concept. So the mind of Christ, understand that, that the whole process from resolution all the way through to action is the idea. And so now it says, For he that hath suffered the flesh hath ceased from sin. Whoa, wait a minute. What does that word mean? The word here is pao, which is a past perfect tense, but it's a passive verb in the Greek, 
or in the Greek terms, it's the middle voice in the Greek. What does that mean? It's not something that the person does, it's something that happens to him. And it should really be translated a little differently because it's, it's ceased in the sense of having been released from. Ceased in the sense of having been released from. God is the implied agent. You're released from the bondage of sin is what the verb really means here. That can be misunderstood very easily. What it really is talking about here is the ruling power of sin has been broken. When you're lost, when you're in the flesh, you are in bondage to sin. If you're a believer, you are now freed from the bondage of sin. Does that mean you'll be perfect? No. But it does mean you have the tools, the power to be released from sin because you can call upon the Holy Spirit. We don't do that enough. We don't do it thoroughly enough, but we do have that freedom. We may be unable to live a perfect life in the true sense of the term, but we are free from the dominance of sin. Or as we, when we go through, Rome, the, the, the key chapter in the Bible on this subject is Romans chapter 6. Sin need not reign in our lives anymore. Yes, we'll stumble from time to time because the flesh still has its victories from time to time, but we are no longer in bondage to sin. We can, by re resolution and by prayer and by walking in the Spirit, have victory over sin. And that's the great victory here. Because he that hath suffered in the flesh hath been released from sin, is what first verse of Peter, uh, 1 Peter 4 deals, deals with there. Moving to the next verse. That he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lust of men, but to the will of God. And, uh, just to, and this is a, uh, an echo to, <clears throat> of Romans 8. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. That's where we should be. Don't get confused. That doesn't, that doesn't relegate us to perfection. We will still stumble and so forth because the flesh is still, there's a war going on. But at the same time, we have the capacity by calling on the Holy Spirit to have victory over that. And so, for he that no longer should live in the rest of his time in the flesh to the lusts of men, but to the will of God. See, Christ is our example of patience in suffering. If that's the case, how can we, who owe everything to him, do any less than arm ourselves with the same mind and so demonstrate that we are his by faith? We should be demonstrating that we are His by faith by having the same mindset that He had. We owe Him that. He's paid the price. Our justification is um, undeniable, perpetual. Eternal security is not the issue here. Our justification is certain. But we owe Him that. And that should uh, cause us to avail ourselves of the powers that have been given to us, namely the Holy Spirit. Now, we do have suffering. Often God uses our suffering to keep us from going into that which would dishonor Him. So sometimes you'll have suffering to, as a preventative measure on God's part. We need to understand that. There's a whole study you can undertake. Is why do Christians suffer? For many reasons. There's at least ten of them in our materials. And we go through that when we go through the book of Romans. But one of the reasons, not the only reason, but one of the reasons Christians suffer, that's God's way of keeping us away from things that would dishonor Him. Another one of the interesting purpose of suffering is to train us to be useful to people with that kind of problem. 
You might be going through bankruptcy to equip you to minister to people who go through bankruptcy in the future, as an example. There are others, obviously. Continuing, for the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lasciviousness, lusts, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries. Wow, that's a list, isn't it? Certainly sounds like America, doesn't it? But what he's saying here is a definite break with the past is required of the believer. In Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 to 21, lists the works of the flesh. A list very analogous to the one we have here in 1 Peter 4. The next few verses in Galatians 5 deal with the fruits of the Spirit. And in Galatians 5, between chapter 9, verse 19 through 23, is a contrast between the works of the flesh and the fruits of the Spirit. Now we could go through each one of these, but I think they're pretty self-evident. We walked in lasciviousness. Um, that's uh, you know, purient behavior and whatever. Lusts. And those aren't just sexual, they're all kinds of lusts. Excessive wine. No, pretty much, an ex, not wine, excessive wine there. And revelings, banquetings. And that's uh, really uh, uh, in, the, in the negative sense. And abominable idolatries. Quite a list. But self evident enough that you can, uh, uh, you know, deal with that, springboard that to your own list. For the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will. In other words, we have already wasted enough of our most inelastic resource. What resources are least elastic? Money is elastic because you can lose money, but you can always gain some more in the future. That's elastic. There is a resource you have that's inelastic. It's limited and not replaceable, and it's perishable. It's called time. Time. You can't recover the opportunities of last week. And the opportunities of today or this week are at hand, and they'll perish in a few days. Our most inelastic resource, if I use that term of an economist, is time. And he says, we've already wasted enough of our most inelastic. For the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles when we did all these terrible things. That should be part of our past. By the way, one thing you'll learn if you've spent your time in, in management, shrewd executives always weigh the alternative opportunity costs in a decision. There are decisions you face, and there's two sides to every one of those decisions. But there's also, in something that you may forego, there's opportunity. So you want to always weigh both sides of that. And um, there's opportunities for disaster as well as gain. And so, the, always recognize. There's an expression in chess, by the way. There's no such thing as a good move in chess or a bad move. Every move has some good or some bad, and you hopefully make those in which the, the positive aspects outweigh the negative is the point. They're never, they're rarely, rarely, I should say, clean, crisp. Every move has uh, a, uh, 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 a, a justified analysis. Well, continuing, wherein they think it strange that ye run not with them to the same excessive riot, speaking evil of you. See, being a biblical Christian is more than just being politically incorrect. I think most of us are very sensitive to the fact that in our culture, our culture today is very different than it was a few decades ago. There was a time 
when many people went to church because it was the socially correct thing to do. Today, if you're going to a true biblical Christian church, you're an outcast among many. You're one of those fundamentalists. You are politically incorrect. But being a biblical Christian is more than just being politically incorrect. You need to understand that the world hates believers. We use that term gospel so loosely. It is very specifically defined. Several places, but the first four verses of 1 Corinthians 15 are the classic definition. Have that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he rose again the third day. That's the gospel. Not that he did miracles, not that he was a great teacher, not that he was a great example. Those are all true things. But that's not the gospel. The gospel that is that he was able to stand in our stead, and he is the only remedy for sin. Churches are not comfortable these days talking about sin. Well, that's what it's all about. The whole field of psychology and psychiatry cannot deal with sin. They can talk about guilt and symptoms and other things. They have no remedy for sin. There's only one remedy for sin, and that's Jesus Christ. But speaking evil of you, what he means here is heaping abuse upon, blaspheming, blaspheming God through you. Continuing verse 5, who shall give account to him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead? Who would that be? Jesus Christ, of course. You and I have an appointment to give account. That's all through the scripture, by the way. It's, not, it's all through the scripture. You have a final exam appointment. There are many passages to that. We'll just focus on 2 Corinthians 5.10. Okay? That's the critical one. You and I. We are, we, everyone that will be before the judgment seat of Christ are saved. People aren't saved, aren't even there. Salvation is not the issue there. Your works are. You're saved, praise God for that. That gives you the right to enter the kingdom. Doesn't give you an inheritance. Your inheritance will be determined by your faithfulness in this lifetime. Not your salvation. Jesus paid for that. He paid for your entry ticket. 100%. Trying to add to that is blasphemy. He did it all. But he has an inheritance for those that have been faithful and diligent in their walk. And that spectrum of alternatives is going to be enormous. Not everybody is equal before the judgment seat of Christ. We're all saved, yes. But the issue there are our works, and our works are going to be trusted by fire. And, and 1 Corinthians 3 gives you the procedure. Wood, hay, stubble, those are flammable. They'll be consumed, worth nothing. Gold, silver, precious stones, they're inflammable. They represent, idiomatically here, the good things. Those things which you did that were responsive to the leading of the Spirit will count. Things that you did that sound great, but they were of your flesh, won't count. Well, I attended church regularly for 20 years. Really? That might not count if it's of the flesh. It may not be relevant at all. But some other gesture, some other commitment that you did may be... That's the point. And some of the people will have incredibly pleasant surprises before the judgment seat. I think many Christians are going to be painfully disappointed. Because they've all been taught that if you're saved, you're going to rule with Christ. No, no, no. You'll have the opportunity to be awarded that if you're faithful. And uh, that's, the, that's, that's at the positive end of the spectrum. 1 Corinthians 3. Anyway, moving on. 
Verse 6, and for this cause was the gospel preached also to them that are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. Wow, the gospel was preached also to them that are dead. We're going to get into a couple of verses here that are going to be heavy stuff. We are to live so as to give account, not to men, but to him who is to judge the living and the dead when he returns in power. And again, referring to the judgment seat of Christ. But the end of all things is at hand. Be ye therefore sober and watch unto prayer. But the end of all things is at hand. What is that referring to? The end times. When did the end times start? It may surprise you to know they've already started. That has been true since the day the Lord Jesus went back to heaven. From that ascension on is the end of all things. That end process has taken several thousand years. It may not sound very contemporary. It's very contemporary because those are coming to an end. But the end of all things is at end. Be therefore sober. And by the way, this is one of those cases, the only case I know of, where the end justifies the means. <laughs> but we are indeed to keep our end in view and not to live for the passing moment, but as one who anticipates the end of all things, which is indeed at hand. One of the great discoveries in your life is to adopt what I like to call a kingdom perspective. Many Christians don't have a kingdom perspective. They haven't been taught that. But there is a kingdom coming and your role, your responsibilities in that kingdom will derive from your faithfulness today. Your behavior matters. Not to earn your salvation. Jesus took care of that. You can't influence that. Jesus did that. If you accept Jesus Christ... Your justification is nailed permanently. Because God and both the Father and the Son and the Spirit, all three members of the Trinity, are committed to preserving that. So it's not in your hands, it's in His. Praise God for that. But our faithfulness in our walk will determine the responsibilities that we'll enjoy in the kingdom that's going to be established. We need to understand that's called sanctification. And... Uh, that's, that's, if you, once you begin to realize that Jesus is coming back, he's going to rule on the earth, and you're going to be part of that picture, your part of that picture will, deter, will be re derived from your faithfulness and diligence today. You're in boot camp for the kingdom. Once you understand that, it changes your priorities every day. It changes your priorities every day. And it says, be ye therefore sober. The word is sophroneo. Uh, be of sound mind is what it really means. It really should be translated sober-minded. Peter uses the expression a great deal. What he actually means, be therefore intelligent. Use your head. Be sober, be of sound mind. Be therefore sober and watch unto prayer. Moving on. And above all things, have fervent charity among yourselves, for charity shall cover the multitude of sins. Now this, of course, is amplified in 1 Corinthians 13. You all know that passage. This is a, he's actually quoting here from Proverbs 10, verse 12. Love will cover the multitude of sins. Because it, be, it will demonstrate your attitude. Now we're not to be indifferent to sin. We are to help those who are overtaken with a fault. Galatians 6, many passages in the New Testament epistles deal with that. We are to cling to one another in love rather than committed to the exposure and censure of others. Boy, watch out for that one. People who are sensitive 
to the teachings of the Word of God run the risk of becoming judgmental. Boy, so-and-so is doing this and that, really. We're not to be committed to the exposure and censure of others. Rather, we're to cling to one another in love. We're not to be indifferent to sin or false doctrine, and yet we're to help those that are overtaken with a fault. Big difference. Big difference. The attitude there is profoundly different. Continuing, use hospitality one to another without grudging. As every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Be, what does it mean to be a steward of the manifold grace of God? That's our stewardship. See, we exercise gifts, but we inspect the fruit. We're not gift inspectors. We are fruit inspectors. We should be looking for the fruit of spiritual gifts in others. And incidentally, if we fail to exercise our spiritual gifts, we defraud the body of Christ. One of the great adventures in life is to discover what supernatural gifts God has given you. They're different for each of us. And when you discover what that supernatural gift, I'm not talking about natural talent, that's a different issue. Talk about the supernatural gifts that God has given you. That's a clue to what he's calling you to do. And if you fail to exercise that spiritual gift, you defraud the family of believers. Verse 11, if any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. If any man minister, let him do it as the ability which God giveth. That God in all things be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Wow. Make sure God is glorified. Again, failure to exercise your gift defrauds all of us in the body. Moving on. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as some strange thing that's happened to you. This is interesting. Peter is writing, his, writing to his readers probably about the time that Nero is starting the persecution of Christians. Understand this, by the way. In the early years after Christ's resurrection, the attack against believers came from the Jewish communities because they resented the, 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 those that were clinging to Christ as the Messiah. And when Luke writes his Gospel and Volume 2, the book of Acts, he was writing to Rome, those that like the trial documents supporting Paul's appeal to Rome, that were pointing out to the Roman leadership that the insurrections that accompanied Paul was, not, was from the Jewish community. Centurions are good, great people in, in, in the writings of Luke. And what he's trying to get across is the troubles that seem to accompany Paul's travels came from the Jewish rabble-rousers reacting to Paul, not from the Jewish... We, it later came from Nero on and so forth that the Roman Empire started persecuting Christians. And that's what's starting here in Peter's letter. Beloved, think not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing has happened to you. So again, this primary reference here may have been to the pending fulfillment of the Lord's prophecy concerning the destruction of Jerusalem. That's when Jerusalem in 70 AD was, was the big event. But also the horrors of the Roman persecution, which was going to last for two centuries. 
And actually much longer than that if you include the 1,500 years of papal persecutions. And if you really want to get into that, I encourage you to get our briefing pack called The Kingdom of Blood, which details that history. Or if you can get a copy of Haley's Bible Handbook, one of the earlier versions, it has that whole history. Later versions that were more politically correct expurgated that very fabulous appendix to Haley's Bible Handbook. Back in there it has, uh, you know, the, the, the early ones are more valuable because they're, they're more forthright. As though some strange thing happened to you. Don't think that you are unique. In fact, your trial, whatever it might be, may be to train you to serve others that have similar circumstances, whatever they might be. About, uh, about with cancer or financial uh, bankruptcy or there are all kinds of trials. The trials you might be, first of all, any trials that you're in, if a believer, are father filtered. And he will not allow you to be tried above that you're able. That's his commitment. But he might be doing that to train you, to prepare you to serve others that may fa be facing the same predicament. That's one of several possibilities. But Peter says, be re but rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. Be joyful in suffering. You've got to be kidding. Doesn't that sound like a contradiction? No, not if you understand the total program. We're facing as a culture a huge change. The country we grew up in, the heritage that we uh, grew to love, is a past myth. We're in a socialistic, probably tyrannical, becoming tyrannical environment. Don't be surprised. That's been the, the environment that most of the body of Christ for most of the last 2,000 years has had to endure. Okay, so don't be surprised. Joy and suffering. Celebrate the fact that it's happening just like he said it was going to do. The believer suffers in fellowship with his Lord. We are to expect this. Jesus said to in John 15, he lays it out. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler teaching through the book of 1 Peter. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android App Store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.